This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Stephen, Tim, Caleb F., Emerson, and Susanna. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first one comes from Stephen, who asks, What is the difference between disciples and apostles? Are there disciples and apostles today? Well, in the New Testament, all of the apostles were disciples, but not all the disciples were apostles. Sometimes the words are used interchangeably, which can be confusing, but eventually a distinction emerges. The apostles were synonymous with the twelve, the inner circle of men called by Jesus and sent out by him as the foundation of the church. That first generation is what we call the apostolic era, and it was during that period that the Holy Spirit inspired the human authors of the New Testament to take the spoken word teachings of Jesus and write them down. When the last of those inspired writings was complete, the work of revelation was done, and so were the special signs that accompanied it, which God had given to testify to the authority of the word. Now, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ to this day is a disciple. A disciple is simply a follower, someone who's committed to disciplining himself and being conformed to the image of Christ. But the office of apostle is now complete. There are no new apostles in that special sense because there are no new scriptures being revealed. That age ended when its work was complete and perfect. And now we have all the knowledge God intends for us to have until Jesus comes. And now Tim asks, Why doesn't the Bible tell us more about Jesus' life, instead of just skipping most of it? Well, Tim, there are all sorts of things the Bible doesn't include, and the life of Jesus between his childhood and the beginning of his ministry is one of those gaps. Is it an oversight, or is this on purpose? Well, remember in The Lord of the Rings when Gandalf tells Frodo that a wizard is never late but always arrives precisely when he means to? The same thing is true about the Bible. There are no oversights or omissions. God reveals exactly what he means to, nothing more and nothing less. So the question we have to ask is, why doesn't God reveal the whole story of Jesus' life on earth? And that leads to a more basic question, what is the Bible for? Well, the answer is to reveal everything we need to know for life and faith. The Bible wasn't written to reveal everything there is to know. It was written to reveal everything we need to know. But not everything we need to know, period. It was written to reveal what we need to know about salvation specifically. If the Bible leaves anything out, not only can we be sure that this was on purpose, but we can also know that however interesting that stuff may have been, it was not necessary for our salvation. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Caleb F. Let's give Caleb a round of applause. 
Here's Caleb's question. Why does the Bible say to obey authorities? Well, does the Bible tell us to obey authorities? It sure does. But actually, it says more than that. Not only are we called to obey authority, but we're commanded to honor authority, too. The fifth commandment tells you to honor your father and your mother. And as Paul points out in Ephesians 6, this is the first commandment with a promise built right in. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, the Bible's teaching about authority in general is all grounded in this commandment, which instructs us to do more than just obey authority, but to love it, to reverence it, and to cherish it. The family is the smallest yet most important government in creation. God made human beings to live not as isolated individuals, but in families. Fathers and mothers have authority over children for their good and for God's glory. The church has government and authorities too, and so does the state. But the family was first, right there at the beginning, before the fall. What that tells us is that we were made to honor authority and to use authority to govern wisely. Now, whenever God raises up an authority in Scripture, whether it's a judge or a prophet or a king or a priest, there is always an understanding that the people should honor these authorities, respect and obey them, follow them. In the New Testament, that pattern is repeated for the church. For example, in Romans 13, Paul counsels believers to submit to the governing authorities. Now, this can be quite challenging to modern people. We don't like authority, and we're very conscious of the way that authority can be abused. Often we tell ourselves that the less government there is, the better. No one should have any authority over you. You should be your only authority. There are two problems with this. First, if authority and government come before sin, like the Bible teaches, then human beings cannot flourish. We cannot fulfill all our God-given potential without authority and government. Second, because of sin, without the restraining hand of authority and government, our own worst impulses would be magnified. As Paul says, the magistrate does not bear the sword in vain. Good government curbs the individual impulse towards sin. Of course, authority is wielded by sinners, which means that authority is not always used rightly and government is not always good. So we need to answer two questions. First, why does God tell us to obey authority? And second, what are the limits of that obedience? Simply put, God tells us to honor and obey authority because all authority comes from God. He raises up leaders, he gives them their power, and we submit to them as his representatives. In the same way that we serve God by serving his image bearers, we also honor him by honoring the authorities that he's given us. This is true even when the authorities themselves are not good. The Bible doesn't teach that good authorities are appointed by God and bad ones aren't. Sometimes God in his wisdom raises up a bad king as punishment, for example. I don't think the Apostle Paul considered the Roman emperor a good authority, but he does counsel obedience.
but not without limits. The apostles show us where the line is drawn early on in the book of Acts, when the authorities in Acts chapter 4 command Peter and John to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do they obey that command? Of course they don't. But if God says to obey authority, how can they justify this disobedience? Well, it's not really disobedience. The apostles are obeying the higher authority of God, even though the lesser authorities are defying God. As Jesus shows us in Matthew 22, we have to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But above all, we have to give God the obedience due to God. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Emerson asks, how many sermons have you preached? Emerson, there are two factors working against me when I try to answer this question. One is that I've preached a lot of sermons. The other is that the older I get, the worse my memory becomes, and it wasn't great to begin with. The closest I can come to is an estimate. I preached for about a year back in 2011-2012, and I've preached steadily week after week since 2015. But I didn't preach every Sunday of those years, and before then I did preach occasionally. So when I do the math, I'd estimate that I've preached maybe 450 sermons altogether. That's just a ballpark number. I know some people who've had to listen to them would say that it felt like a lot more. Now, just for fun, let's say each of those sermons averaged 30 minutes in length. Uh, Some of them went a lot longer than that. But that would add up to about 13,500 minutes of preaching or about 225 hours. And again, I'm sure that some people would say it felt like a lot longer than just 225 hours. And now Susanna asks, who is your favorite superhero? Well, Susanna, the answer is myself. You may not even realize that I'm a superhero, but in fact, I became one about seven or eight years ago. Here's how it happened. A good friend of mine was really interested in Marvel superheroes of the Silver Age, basically from the comics of the mid-1950s until 1970. Personally, I was never interested in that stuff, but since we were friends, I'd go with him to comic book stores for moral support. One day, we decided to become superheroes ourselves. We already had our everyday identities. We just had to figure out what our super strengths were going to be. He came up with mine, and I came up with his. First, I decided that my friend's superhero identity would be Dr. Lucid. Lucid means clear, and since he's a teacher, he really liked the sound of that. But remember, your super strength is the opposite of your everyday life. So if your strength is being clear, that means you are ordinarily not clear. So Dr. Lucid was my way of saying that ordinarily nobody understood what he was talking about. Now, my friend came up with my secret identity, and he called me the monocle. He thought I was a stuck-up elitist, and that's the sort of person who wears a monocle, which is a single round eyeglass that you stick in one eye. The penguin in Batman wears a monocle, and so does the planter's peanut representative, Mr. Peanut. As the monocle, I could shoot withering laser beams from my condescending judgmental eye. Well, no one knows you better than your friends. 
And I guess the fact that I embraced my secret identity as the monocle tells you just how perceptive his judgment was. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. I hope you're thinking about what your secret superpower is. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.